Amen. Those are bold words we just sang. That in the midst of sorrow, need, even death, say that we're not forsaken. The reason why we have that kind of hope is because of the work of Jesus Christ, conquering death forever. We're here to celebrate a truth, a real grace, a real hope that transcends our greatest needs, our greatest sadness, even death itself. My name is John Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Baptist Church. It brings me joy to bring you God's word this morning. If you have a Bible, go and grab it and open it to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. It's a joy to see you all after not seeing you last Sunday. Um, in the last like 10 to 14 days, I've been having this persistent cough. I am a 10-time COVID passer in the test passer in the last two weeks, so I promise I don't have that. But uh, I do have something. Uh, so if you're in these front two rows, I'll be praying for you. And um, if you see me coughing, then uh, just pray for me. Uh, Hebrews 4, I'll be reading from verse 14 to chapter 5, verse 10. 4, 14 to 5, verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. No one <coughs> takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Lord, we come to you this morning as, as weak sheep needing your help. So we ask, Lord, as we approach your throne of grace that you would help us. We need your mercy. We need your grace. 
Pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning by the power of your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever hate talented people? You know, those people that are just amazing at everything they do. Seems like everything they touch turns into good grades, adulation from their adoring fans, promotions. And when you share with them your problems, they seem totally and infuriatingly, innocently perplexed. You thought that was hard? I just crammed this morning. I thought it was fine. You know, if, if you just do this and you should have no issues, it's a part of you that considers whether God may desire me to create some trials in their life for them. What's so annoying about talent? Mainly that I lack it. Talent is not relatable for the talentless. And while the talented hoist themselves up from onto their own winner's platform, the talentless down below squint with our wimpy little eyes to strain to see what life is like up there. The distance is too great and we can't relate. I wonder if you've ever felt that way about Jesus. If you want to talk talent, think about literally the God of the universe. How can we relate to Jesus if he's so unlike us? The author of Hebrews knows this difficulty. He knows that you and I here this morning, we're all wimps. But rather than viewing Christ's greatness as something that pushes him away from us, he encourages us to see his work as the great high priest as something that draws us near. Something that draws us near. So here's the main command for us this morning. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus, our great high priest. Hold on to Jesus, our great high priest. This command comes in two different forms. <laughs> in uh, chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Let's read that again together. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I preached on these three verses in our previous sermon in the book of Hebrews. This, this section of verses 14 through 16 kind of serves like a hinge between the passage before it, which talks about not hardening your heart and needing grace to continue, and the following section, which talks about Jesus, our great high priest. And the author of Hebrews says similar commands here in verses 14 and 16. We're supposed to hold on to the confession of our hope and approach the throne of grace for mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And why do we do this? Well, the reasons are because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet without sin. 
For the next section here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, the author of Hebrews takes this idea of a great high priest and zooms in. He gives us three reasons to trust in this great high priest. And in expounding the role of the great high priest in the Old Testament and kind of explaining what the qualifications for a great high priest is, he wants us to hope, to have hope, to instill hope in us to rely on Jesus, to rely on Jesus. So the command is to hope in Jesus, and there are three reasons why we are to hope in Jesus in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Reason number one, because Jesus is weak. Because Jesus is weak. Number two, because Jesus is appointed by God. Because Jesus is appointed by God. And number three, because Jesus is the source of our salvation. Because Jesus is a source of our salvation. So number one, because Jesus is weak. Number two, because Jesus is appointed by God. Number three, because Jesus is a source of our salvation. <coughs> Let's look first at reason number one. Because Jesus is weak. Look at verse one. For every high priest is taken from among men, uh, taken from among men, is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So after describing Jesus as a high priest, there's an explanation of what a high priest does. The, off the office of high priest is appointed about God, concerning matters of God, for the people. In Israel, a, a great high priest would be appointed, and their job is to offer gifts and to offer sacrifices. Gifts referring to general temple life, like the regular sacrifices that you would do every week, or, or the tenth of everything that you own that you would contribute to the temple. But sacrifices were more, <coughs> were more specific for the reason of sin. The need for forgiveness. You can see that in verse 1, that the high priest offers sacrifices for sins. For sins. And notice here that the main role of Jesus is not a mere moral teacher. He didn't come to the earth to just show good examples of a full humanity or to teach you moral answers to different ethical quandaries that you have in life. He became a man to accomplish a specific mission. And that mission, it was the work of a high priest. He came to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. In other words, Jesus' salvific work is a sacrificial work. Jesus' salvific work is a sacrificial work. Jesus came to offer sacrifices. And this work is something that pertains to God as done for the people. And so the author then goes to show a qualification for Jesus' high priestly work in verse 2. Read with me. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. The high priest, 
One of the qualifications for this high priest is for him to be weak. For him to be weak, which is why he can deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. And that's why the author of Hebrews states that, that the high priest himself has to go and make a sacrifice for his own sins before he's able to go and sacrifice sins on behalf of his people. Now, the author of Hebrews is not saying that Jesus had sins himself, that, that he was a sinful person, and that Jesus had to sacrifice for his own sins before he sacrifices for anyone else. Jesus doesn't need a sacrifice for sins because Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. That's why in chapter 4, verse 15 that we read earlier, it said that Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, yet without sin. The author of Hebrews here is talking more generally about the office of high priest as a whole, thinking about that job description in general. And, and what would happen with this high priest is that on the day of atonement, the one day of the year that God appoints a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for the entire nation of Israel, the high priest would walk into the temple, not into the Holy Holies, but into the temple, and first offer a sacrifice for sins for himself. For himself to cleanse himself first and then enter into the holiest of holies, the holy of holies, the, the holiest part of the tabernacle in order to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. And the reason why he has to make a sacrifice for himself first is because he himself, this high priest, is sinful. He would be defiling the holiness of the Holy of Holies without making atonement for his own sins first. And because of that weakness, he's able to deal gently with those who are going astray. He's able to relate with you and I. So if Jesus isn't sinful, how is Jesus clothed in weakness? How's Jesus clothed in weakness? I mean, the idea of a sinless human being doesn't sound very relatable to our own experience, does it? So in what sense is Jesus becoming weak? Well, he becomes weak by becoming a man. He becomes weak by becoming a man. Take a moment to think about the marvel of the incarnation. That God himself, God the Son, fully divine, puts on a human nature so that he is also weak. The God of infinite power needs to sleep. The God, of, of, the God who provides for our needs himself becomes hungry. The God of supreme joy and happiness grieves. Jesus can deal gently with us because he knows what it's like to be weak. And yet, he never sins. And yet, he never sins. <laughs> it's hard for us to imagine a genuine, sinless relatability. For us to be able to relate to someone or something that is genuinely sinless. Usually, the way that we connect with people is by being able to relate with our own experiences. So I can connect with someone and relate with them in our sinful anger against traffic. You can relate in your boredom at work. But Jesus, looking at Jesus' perfect obedience doesn't initially seem very relatable. But Jesus' relatability with us 
is unlike any other kind of relatability that we see in the world. Jesus is different than the high priest in the sense that his gentleness and sympathy doesn't come from his own sinfulness, saying, hey, I mess up too. We all make mistakes. It's not where Jesus' gentleness and care comes from. It doesn't come from his relatability in sin, but his relatability in humanity. That while he himself never sins, he, he knows what it's like to be tempted in every way that we are. And yet, to not sin in the midst of that pressure, in the midst of that difficulty. And even more than that, his perfection makes him able to care for us without a single ounce of arrogance. Without a single ounce of arrogance. And in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus himself says that, that he is gentle and lowly in heart. That, that his very essence, his very heart, his, his very soul is a gentle one. That he cares for us with, with tender care. And in his weakness... And in the midst of his resistance of temptation, he's able to relate with us in a perfect way. This is totally unlike us. When we have even the slightest inkling of superiority over another, we tend to use it to puff ourselves up over someone else. But Jesus' weakness here relates to the weakness of humanity without ever failing or becoming arrogant. And rather than elevating his own position over us as we continue to stumble and fall over our own sin, Jesus stoops even lower. He uses his sinless superiority. That's an opportunity to lord himself over us or to chide us in doing better, but as an opportunity to serve. He uses his weakness as a man, not as an opportunity to complain, but to have compassion for those of us who are ignorant and going astray. Have you ever thought about that? that? That Jesus is able to condescend, to literally lower himself to us without ever being condescending. Instead, his heart is filled with compassion. Every week I'm gifted with new reminders of my own stupidity. My soul doesn't need much help in getting led astray. And yet Jesus, in his infinite compassion, doesn't see my weakness as something repulsive, but as a reason to lean in with his gentle care. His weakness gives him, our weakness gives him compassion. Compassion. You'll never be too ignorant for Jesus. You'll never be led too far astray, never too far gone. Jesus is the great high priest, the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. And if Jesus was willing to descend from the heights of heaven to take on the weakness of human flesh and to dwell among us, then he's able to come to meet with you and to deal with you gently. This is what makes Jesus so different than any other God. There are sinful gods that are quite relatable to us. We read about the Greek pantheon of gods, and we read about Zeus or, or Hermes or, or Poseidon, and, and, and they're very relatable because they're evil gods. They're imperfect. 
but they don't offer a true solution to our sin. And their gods are perfect and mighty and holy and above us, but and unable to relate to us in our weakness. In Christ, we have a holy, perfect, sinless God who clothes himself with weakness and comes to us. Not to condemn, but to save, to deal with us gently. A compassionate condescension. A righteous relatability. That's our Jesus. When you feel weak, take comfort in Jesus, our great high priest. This also means that when we counsel others, the best thing that we can do isn't to just relate with them. Isn't just to say, hey, that's really hard. I feel sorry for you. The best thing that you can do when you talk to other people in the midst of their weakness is to take them to Christ. To take them to Christ. I can't relate to everything a person is going through. I'm too young. I'm too naive, too short-sighted, perhaps too talented. But I can take them to Jesus. I can take them to Jesus. He's able to care for them. Take others to Jesus. You may not be able to relate to them, but you can always point them to the one who can. Parents, don't ju just point out Jesus' disapproval when your children disobey. It's easy to tell them, Jesus doesn't want you to do that. And that's true. Jesus doesn't want them to disobey. But remind them also about how Jesus is able to relate with them in their weakness. And Jesus isn't just expecting perfection from them, but that Jesus was willing to meet us in the midst of our imperfection, in the midst of our difficulty. That's reason number one, because Jesus is weak. Peter's shaking his head because he had an application he wanted me to share, but I'm not going to share it. You can talk to him after service. Reason number two, because Jesus is appointed by God. Because Jesus is appointed by God. Let's look at verse 4. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The second reason why we should hold on to Jesus as our high priest is because Jesus was appointed by God. Because Jesus was appointed by God. In, in Exodus 28, Aaron is called by God to serve in the office of high priest. God himself says, give me Aaron and his sons. Now, the author of Hebrews quotes the scriptures to show that Jesus was called to be a priest by God. First, he quotes Psalm 2-7, which we read this morning, which comes up again in Hebrews 1. It was actually a mistake. We shouldn't have read Psalm 2. It should have been Psalm 110, but I told Peter the wrong passage. Psalm 2-7 is something that we already addressed in Hebrews 1. 
This is God's kingly declaration over Jesus. Now, in that sermon that I'm sure all of you remember from a couple months ago, we talked about how God the Father is not turning Jesus into the second person of the Trinity, nor is it saying that there is a day where the Son didn't exist and then came to be, and then, and then God becomes the Father. What's happening in Psalm 2-7 is the Father declaring the Son in his humanity uh, to be king to be the Davidic king, that when Jesus becomes a man and finishes the mission that he has on earth and he ascends to heaven and he sits down on the throne, that the father recognizes the Davidic Messiah and declares him to be the son of David, the Davidic son. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David that his son, the Messiah, the Davidic king, would reign forever. And he's declaring him to be that. And I'm sure all of you remember that. In the next verse, the author of Hebrews is stating that in addition to declaring Jesus as the Davidic king, God is also declaring Jesus as a priest, not just as a king, but also a priest. Psalm 110 verse 4 says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God declares Jesus to be a priest. So Jesus isn't someone who just kind of hires himself for this job. He is commissioned by God for this work. He's commissioned by God for this work. <coughs> now, last week was together for the gospel conference. I was sitting there um, waiting to, to hang out, and suddenly one of the conference organizers comes up to me and grabs me by the shoulders, and he says, hey, I need you to go find 12 men. And I looked at him, and I said, yes, sir. So I go into the audience, I say, hey, stop what you're doing, come with me, I'll make you a fisher of books. Right? So I take him to the backstage, they're carrying stacks of books, and we take it onto the stage. We're holding them as Mark is giving away books to various people in the audience. Now, I can't just go on that stage at Together for the Gospel by my own authority. I mean, I can, but then I'd be tackled by security. What I need is authority from above, from Sean LeCount. In the same way, Jesus as man doesn't just kind of hire himself to be the high priest for us. He's received divine appointment from God to accomplish this work of a great high priest, which means that you and I can have complete confidence that Jesus' work is not an accident, but it's commissioned by the Father. It's commissioned by the Father. The work of the cross was not a cosmic accident. It wasn't as though God the Father was ready to smite the earth and then his son stands in opposition against him to bear the brunt of sin. It wasn't an act of divine child abuse. The Father and the Son were united in this divine work. God called, and Jesus obeyed. This was a divine work appointed by God for the divine and Davidic Son of God to accomplish. Because God never does anything by accident. God never does anything by accident. He's completely sovereign. And we talk about his control often, how God's in control over everything, even when things are bad. And that is supposed to be a great comfort to us as Christians. But the truth 
that God is in control of everything in isolation, when we just think about the bad events, is actually of very little use. God's control over bad events by itself, that God's sovereign over tragedies doesn't provide any confidence that things are going to go well. I spent much of last week weeping over the sudden death of my dear friend Aaron Fowler. Some of you got to meet him. He passed in a Navy training accident on Easter. In the midst of sorrow, through tears, what provides comfort isn't sovereignty alone. Isn't sovereignty alone. God's sovereignty over his death or his control over that tragedy doesn't soothe my sorrows. That alone by itself doesn't bring me any peace. It's not just that God's in divine control, but it's what he does with that control. What makes God's divine sovereign control comforting is that the God who's in control of the most heartbreaking things of this world has also divinely commissioned the solution to the darkest evils of this world. That he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for sin and conquer death forever. That whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may better, bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking, because my God is true each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. How does pain and sorrow depart? Through the work of Christ, our great high priest, and God who sovereignly ordained this dark providence, commissions Jesus as a high priest to redeem my friend Aaron by his blood, to raise him in the resurrection day to come, that God does not only sovereignly reign over tragedies, but he also sovereignly provides the solution. And he accomplishes that sovereign solution by appointing Jesus to be our great high priest. That's point number two, because Jesus is appointed by God. Because Jesus is appointed by God. Here's a last point for us this morning. Number three, because Jesus is the source of our salvation. Because Jesus is the source of our salvation. Verse seven. <coughs> During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Order of Melchizedek. Now, the author of Hebrews turns from how Jesus gets appointed the high priest to what he does as the high priest, to what he does as the high priest. He prays to the Lord with loud cries and tears, and Jesus is heard because of his reverence or his fear of God. 
He, he learns obedience and becomes a source of eternal salvation. <clears throat> he gets declared a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, in short, Melchizedek is a priest of Yahweh that appears to Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 14, pronounces a blessing on him, and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. And the author of Hebrews is going to argue later in Hebrews chapter 7 that Melchizedek, this priest of Yahweh, uh, because he appears before Aaron ever became a priest, that Melchizedek trumps Aaron in the priest kind of pecking order. That there's a better line that Jesus is coming from, and Jesus is part of that lineage from Melchizedek. But that idea about Melchizedek gets expanded in Hebrews chapter 7, which means that I'll expound on it in a future sermon, Lord willing, probably in, in 2023. Uh, but what does the author of Hebrews mean when he says that Jesus learned obedience and was perfected? When he learned obedience and was perfected. Well, we believe that Jesus was already perfect as God. That's, that's part of the reason why the author of Hebrews says that although he was the son, he learned obedience. He's trying to draw the contrast that, that Jesus, God the son, who is omniscient, who knows everything, learns obedience. So it's not that, that he learns more in, in that sense, but the way... That, that Jesus gains knowledge here in verse 8 is through a knowledge of experience. A knowledge of experience. He, he learns obedience as the God-man in his obedience to death. And he's made perfect through his sufferings on the cross. <coughs> He's made perfect through his sufferings on the cross. The author of Hebrews talks about this himself in chapter 2, uh, verse 10, with that God makes the source of their salvation, being Jesus, perfect through suffering, through suffering. So in what sense is Jesus made perfect? Is Jesus imperfect? Well, Jesus is perfected not as the God-man because he's already sinless. It's not like he needs to kind of fix himself up. Um, he is made perfect or, or complete in his role as a high priest. In his role as a high priest. He's perfected <coughs> in his role as a source of salvation through suffering. Now, you've probably applied for jobs before. And you'll read something like requires a master's degree and 10 years of experience, right? And, and those are prerequisites before you apply because they want to kind of weed out those who are less experienced or unqualified for the role. And so what you need to do if you want to be able to qualify for a job like that is that you need to be made perfect or you need to complete those kind of qualifications. So I need to go and get a degree and, and work a certain amount of years so I could qualify for that kind of job. What's happening with Jesus here is that he's qualifying himself as a high priest. And that job description for the high priest requires suffering. Requires suffering. He needs to suffer in order to accomplish the work of redemption for us. So Jesus learns obedience through what he suffers. And he's made perfect through suffering. And in so doing... He becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. <clears throat> See, Jesus' suffering and his obedience is central 
to his work, is central to his work as a priest. It's in his suffering that he's made perfect and becomes a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He has to die in order to be the great high priest who can offer real salvation to us all. Why did Jesus have to die? Because sin has real consequences. Because sin has real consequences. In, in Genesis 2.17, God warns Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Because for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And ever since, the world has been cursed with death after death after death. And for Jesus to atone for sin, to pay the full penalty for sin, he had to offer a full payment, which involved death. Instead of offering an animal, this high priest, Jesus Christ, offered himself a willing sacrifice. Jesus, to redeem our loss, hanged upon a shameful cross. In verse 7, Jesus cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears his cries as the one who can save him. And what did Jesus cry? Well, in the Gospels, we don't see any quotation of Jesus on the cross asking God to spare him from the death that he was about to save. You see one instance in the Garden of Gethsemane where, where Jesus asks that the cup would pass from him, and yet he immediately follows it up with a greater request, which is yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus never asked for an escape plan, an eject button from his work on the cross. So what was he crying about? Jesus didn't cry for escape, but for salvation. Jesus didn't cry for escape, but for salvation. Jesus cried to the one who can save him from death. Not, but not just to save him from death, but to defeat death through his death. John 12, 27 through 28. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus cries out in agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he doesn't ask God to pull him off the cross. Jesus cries out with a loud voice before his death. But he didn't ask God to spare him. What he did pray in Luke 23, 34 was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Even in Jesus' deepest agony, he's interceding before God as the great high priest on behalf of his people. That as he's hanging on the cross, Seeing sinful humanity spit at him, scorn him, that his heart, in the midst of his greatest weakness, was moved towards compassion. 
that even in the midst of the greatest pain and agony that this world could ever see, that all that Jesus could cry out was for the forgiveness of his people. Father, forgive them. He cries out to God asking to save us from death. And in pouring out his wrath on the Son, God's answer was, I will. I will forgive them. And in raising Jesus from the dead, the Father completes his answer that death will be no more. Jesus pays the penalty for sin in full, not by avoiding death, but by completing the defeat of sin and death through the resurrection. If you're not a Christian, do you see Christ's offer of salvation to you this morning? He is the only source of salvation, true salvation from sin, from death. This salvation isn't given to everyone. <clears throat> it's only given to those who have trusted in Christ and obey him. But I have good news for you this morning. That Christ willingly experienced suffering for you. He can intercede. He can plead before God on your behalf. And the good news to you this morning is that God in his kindness has provided this source for you. That if you turn from your sin and you trust in him, if you go to this high priest, you can find in him all the grace and help that you need. That you could sing the words of Arise, my soul, arise, that my God is reckoning, reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear that his spirit answers to the blood and tells you that you're born of God. That, that Christ's five bleeding wounds would plead for you this morning. You can have that grace if you turn to Christ and trust in him. Go to him. Find all the grace and help that you need. See, this is the God that we worship. A gentle, God-appointed, salvation-winning high priest. And since we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, let us hold on to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And on that day, when we've risen to meet the Lord face to face, we'll sing around that throne for endless days, ever with the sons of light, blessing, honor, glory, and might to the great high priest, the Lamb of God for sinners slain. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for sending Christ to be a great high priest for us, to intercede on our behalf. We thank you for the bleeding sacrifice 
who fully satisfies your wrath for all who obey him. We do ask for your grace. <coughs> we cannot hang on without your help. So we ask God for, for strength from your spirit to be able to do the good work of belief, to obey him, to hold on to our confession, and to rejoice in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Going to take the next couple minutes to share takeaways with the neighbor. If you're, <coughs> if you're visiting us here this morning, sorry. <coughs> if you're visiting us here this morning, feel no obligation to share. You go ahead and listen in on other people's conversation. Let's go ahead. And